Find a fresh take on a fall getaway to Wilmington, North Carolina and beaches. Enjoy hiking trails in a state park, fresh seafood with a sight of live music and fall festivals galore. Then live it up along the Riverwalk in Wilmington's historic downtown with three island beaches, Carolina, Curie and Wrightsville and a vibrant downtown. You get the best of the Carolina coast all in one place. Plan your fall getaway at Wilmington and Beaches Vacation.com. Freedom of speech, freedom of expression, these are things that we have guaranteed in our constitutions around the Western world, but there's something that seems perpetually under threat. Hello, I'm Brian Lilly. This is the Full Comment Podcast. We've talked about freedom of speech a lot on this podcast, in the pages of National Post, in the pages of the Toronto Sun. And it never seems to die. That's because those that want to take away freedom of speech never seem to die. They, they perpetually find new ways to regulate speech, to tell us either through laws, regulations, or public shaming that you can't say that. And that is part of what our next guest wants to talk about. But before we get to him, I do want to remind you that you can su- subscribe to the Full Comment Podcast on whatever app or device you're listening to. Please hit that subscribe button, show us some love, show us some support, make sure you don't miss an episode, and of course, leave a review. Uh, Brendan O'Neill is a man who's been writing irreverently for many years, mostly at Spiked, where he used to be the editor, now he's the chief political columnist. Uh, You can also find him in the Daily Mail and the Spectator. But his new book, uh, just out a few weeks ago now, is called A Heretic's Manifesto, Essays on the unsayable, and I have to admit, Brendan, I'm a little bit worried about what you're going to say (laughs) and how I might get cancelled from hosting you here. (laughs) Oh, well, thanks for having me, Brian. It's a pleasure. I will try not to say anything too cancellable. We'll see how it goes. (laughs) Well, you say at the opening of the book, and and I find this interesting, that cancel culture, uh, you get why people use the phrase, but you don't like it. Uh, that that it's not quite right. Why? Yeah, I mean, I do use the term cancel culture. I think it's very useful. I think people understand what it means. You know, there's this thing going around parts of the left saying cancel culture is a myth. It doesn't really exist. People aren't concerned about it. But when I speak to members of the public, when I do talks around the UK or elsewhere, people instantly know what that phrase means. They know it refers to a kind of politically correct intolerance for anyone who deviates from the new orthodoxies, whether it's on uh, the new racial politics, gender ideology, or whatever else it might be. Cancel culture is a real thing. But the point I make in the introduction is that it's not sufficient as a term to describe the authoritarian moment that we're living through. Uh, sometimes I think cancel culture is a bit too quaint. It's kind of almost comedic. It's alliterative and it kind of rolls off the tongue, but it feels too light and too soft to describe what I think we're living through, which is a counter enlightenment, a reversal of the great gains of modernity from freedom of conscience to tolerance to the ideals of equality and democracy. I think all of these things are under attack by an increasingly Um, intolerant authoritarian establishment. So cancel culture, I understand it. It makes sense. It's useful. But I think we need a bigger, larger term to describe what we're going through. Uh, When I was growing up, I used to hear regularly about, uh, you know, Voltaire's famous statement, whether he said it or not, about defending 
to the death, your right to say something, even if you disagrees. We would often hear that, well, you know, the threat to freedom of speech, it comes from those far right Christian conservatives in the United States. It's funny, I just had um, D. Snyder of Twisted Sister, that hair rock band of the 80s. Um, it popped up in my newsfeed the other day that it was um, around this time in 1985. He was testifying before the American Congress because Al Gore's wife had led a campaign to ban song lyrics. So, I mean, this has been going on for a long time, and there's different iterations of it. But I would argue that today, um, it, it's not American far-right Christian conservatives that are the biggest threat. As much as we get said that in Canada, things are bad, I look across to once Great Britain and wonder if you've given up on the Enlightenment completely. <laughs> Yeah, I worry that we have. I think it's and it's tragic. This is a Britain was an incredibly important place for the Enlightenment, of course, especially Scotland. Um, but and also, I think Scotland might be worse than the rest of the UK when I look. And, and Scotland, I think, is probably the worst for the kind of trends that we're talking about. Yes, um, you know, England was England and Scotland and Wales were incredibly important parts of the world when it came to enlightenment ideals, also the ideal of press freedom, freedom of speech. A lot of that stuff was born here in the 1500s and the 1600s. You know, the, the uh, Bill of Rights in the United States was very much influenced by, by ideas that came to uh, came to the fore in the English Civil War in the 1640s, which is when uh, English people fought to limit the power of the monarch and increase the power of Parliament. So um, we are a country that has a long, great tradition of standing up for reason and freedom and tolerance, and we seem to be abandoning a lot of that. This is now a country in which, if you make fun of the pride flag, you might get a knock on the door from the police. This has literally happened. This is a country in which if you share a, a limerick online, a, a funny little poem about transgenderism and the ridiculous idea that a man can become a woman, for example, you can get a visit from the police. That also happened in this country. People get arrested almost every day here for things they say online, or they at least get questioned. There are a huge number of police investigations, most of which don't come to anything, but there is always that menacing threat. And for a while, uh, I think they're kind of on their way out now. We had a, a thing here called a non-crime hate incident. Now, a non-crime hate incident, as the name suggests, is something that is not criminal at all, but people might judge that it was fueled by a hateful idea. For example, if you go online and you refer to a man who identifies as a woman as he rather than as she, that could be interpreted as a non-crime hate incident. It would be logged by the police. It would be added to their statistics. And it's possible that it would be a black mark on your record and you might not get a job, you might not be able to teach children, you might not be able to do certain things. So that is purely Orwellian, that's purely tyrannical, that is um, thought crime, because essentially there you're punishing people for an emotion they feel, or a certain amount of anger they feel about a new ideology or a new idea. So that's how far Britain has fallen, I think. We've gone from a country that put its neck on the line for the freedom of the press and freedom of the freedom of speech to one that now arrests people for making fun of the pride flag. It's a very worrying situation. I, I would say that even if you support the pride flag, you should be worried about that mm -hmm. because if you can be arrested for making fun of the pride flag, well, okay, what's next? Where do you go from there? Um, it, it, and the idea that they are essentially reaching into your home 
because you posted something in the privacy of your home online or you said something to someone and you're reported. I mean, this, this goes against everything that we know going back to Magna Carta, Declaration of Arbroath, the English Civil War, uh, all of these things, all of these steps that took hundreds of years to get us to the point where the government didn't have control of everything and is putting us back into that state. Do you think, before we get into some of the contents of, of your book and, and the individual points you make, do, do you think that there's a large part of the population that just feels better in the warm embrace of a an all-powerful, all-controlling state that we, you know, will we'll tell you when, when and what to say. I think it's. I, I think some people do definitely, and certainly those whose beliefs and ideas are being protected by the state or are being enforced by the state. So, for example, those who line up behind the pride flag, and uh, I completely agree with you. Even those who support the pride flag ought to be concerned that it's become this object that people are not allowed to blaspheme against. You know. I think the last blasphemy trial uh, against Christianity in the United Kingdom was in 1977, I think, maybe 1978. And that was when uh, a gay magazine here published a poem about Christ, which was quite sexually explicit. And it was judged by some Christian fundamentalists. You were talking about them earlier. It was judged by some of them to be blasphemous. And there was a successful trial against the magazine and they were fined for publishing this poem. Uh, So that's what censorship used to be like. You fast forward to uh, 2023 and somehow, bizarrely, it's the people on the on the other side. It's the people who stand up for gay rights or who ostensibly stand up for gay rights who are now pursuing those who blaspheme against their paraphernalia, their iconic images, their flags and so on. So there has been an extraordinary turnaround. Um, My view in relation to the pride stuff in particular is that I am fully 100% in favor of gay equality. I think the movement for gay equality in the 60s and the 70s, including here in the UK with the Gay Liberation Front, these were wonderful steps forward for humanity, for equality, for the ideal that people should be able to live freely as they choose. But somehow over the past few years, those um, identitarian movements, those uh, one, those groups that once fought for equality have become increasingly authoritarian. And I find that increase, I find that very, very worrying. But as to the public attitude, I think there's a lot of skepticism and cynicism amongst ordinary people towards the new authoritarianism, towards the new political correctness. They're worried about not being able to say what they want to say. And, and they're worried about the chilling effect. So it's not just the occasional arrest of someone who, um, blasphemes against the pride flag. It's not just the abuse received by someone like J.K. Rowling, for example. All of this has a chilling effect because it sends a message across the country that if you think about doing something like this, if you say these things, if you express agreement with J.K. Rowling, for example, you will suffer as well. You might lose your job. You might get a knock on the door. You might be shamed and demonized on the internet. So I think as a consequence of that, there's a spiral of silence and people keep their views to themselves very often. So it's the uh, culture people, of self-censorship. Most people can't afford to fight back mm-hmm. against being canceled like J.K. Rowling. I mean, she can live in her beautiful home up in Scotland and you know, say what she wants and and just count the money while she's doing it. And and that's not a slag against her. She that's the reality, and most people don't have that. I, I believe the the woman she was standing up for when all of this 
kicked off and I'm, you know, it's too long ago now for me to remember all the names and details exactly, but that woman lost her job. Um, Rowling uh, di- did not. Now, I, I applaud her for uh, standing up for other people losing their jobs over, over things like this. But um, it, it, I understand why people will and do self-censor. Um, it is, uh, you know, Billy Bragg got us New England, but it comes with a new religion that believes in uh, censorship. Yeah, and um, you're absolutely right about J.K. Rowling. She is uncancellable, and and it really infuriates um, some members of the of the trans lobby and and the kind of uh, the politically correct mobs on the internet. They fu- they fume that they can't cancel her. It irritates the hell out of them. They wish they could drag her down and and um, reduce her to the to to the level of a witch, which is how they view her. But she can't be cancelled. She's too too much of a cultural institution. She's too famous. She's too rich. She's too culturally powerful. So they can't do it. Um, I'm still full of admiration for what she does because she could have a very easy, comfortable billionaire's life, not saying anything and just living it up, which is probably what I would do if I was in her position. I'm sure lots of people would. But instead, she's chosen to speak out, put her head above the parapet, and say the unsayable, which unbelievably these days includes saying that men are men and women are women. So I admire her for that. But yes, I think it's a, it's a twofold situation because on the one hand, someone like J.K. Rowling, I think, inspires confidence in people. And they think, well, I'm going to speak up too. If she can do it, I can do it. But on the other hand, the extraordinary demonization of her, the treatment of her as a witch, as the scum of the earth, as a bigot, as a transphobe, that also has a knock-on effect of making people think, well, maybe I should keep my views to myself. Around the time that your uh, book came out, Brendan, I wrote a column in the Toronto Sun um, that was headlined, it's it's t- uh, time to stop erasing women from our language. And it, it was really prompted by watching not just the change in government, but the change in our media's language. Uh, the government began to use terms like people who menstruate in official documents, in the House of Commons, they began to uh, use terms like chest feed. And then I noticed a story at the end of May from the Canadian press or National Wire Service saying pregnant people, pregnant people should be especially vigilant when wildfires pollute the air. That's when our wildfire season took off and the, the, the air was quite hazy around Vancouver and other parts of British Columbia. Well, who are these pregnant people? I think we'd call them women, but they did not use the term women. They only used it. With, they quoted a doctor who used the term women, but the, the journalist write it, writing the story was very cautious not to use the term women or mothers. It was always pregnant people or pregnant individuals. And then the same thing happened on our state broadcaster, CBC. They did a whole story on the problem of cannabis use uh, for morning sickness among pregnant individuals. And it's absolutely bizarre to watch. And I thought we are, you know, in so many ways, women have fought for equality. And now I'm not even sure that it's complete, uh, the fight. But they're being told, okay, we're going to change the language and you don't exist. Nobody's doing that to men, but they are doing it to women. And and that's part of what you talk about in in your book. Yes, I think it is um, straight up misogyny. I think the fact that some women feel now that they can't even speak about themselves and their own experiences and, and their own existence without someone screaming at them that they're a bigot and that they should say pregnant people instead of pregnant women 
or they should say menstruators instead of women and um, cervix havers instead of women and so on. All these kind oh, of oh, that's deep- uh, cervix havers. That's a new one to me. Yeah, that was one that was here in the UK, you know, incredibly dehumanizing terms. And then, of course, terms like chest feeding instead of breastfeeding and so on. Um, very, very dehumanizing. And it makes perfect sense to me why women would be angry about this. And in fact, this is one of the things that J.K. Rowling and other so-called TERFs, which means trans-exclusionary radical feminist, but which really means which It really means disobedient woman who refuses to do as we tell her. Um, a lot of those women, gender-critical women, have raised concerns about the, the, the language changes that are taking place. And, and yeah, I talk about this in, my, in the book. In fact, the first chapter is called Her Penis, um, because I have been grimly fascinated with those two words when they're put together, her penis, for the past few months, past couple of years, in fact, because you see that phrase, her penis, everywhere now. In the UK, you see it in the Times, the newspaper of record. It's even been on the BBC. They refer to her penis when, when talking about a man who identifies as a woman. We've seen that phrase used in courts of law. So if a man is arrested, a biological male is arrested for sexual assault or rape, but he now identifies as a woman, in a court of law, they have said things like, she took out her penis and showed it to the victim, etc., etc. And what you realize as you listen to all of this is that they are lying to us. They are, this is a, a... uh, pure Orwellianism, you know, the point Orwell made uh, in me- much of his writing, but particularly in 1984, is that the control of language is very often about controlling thought. It's about changing not only how we speak, but fundamentally how we think, how we think about the world, how we think about ourselves. And, you know, one story I draw attention to in that chapter is when the New York Times and the BBC both reported on an 80 year old woman in New York City who had murdered and decapitated a woman in her 60s. And I was reading this thinking, hold on, 80-year-old, 80-something women don't do this. I can't remember any time in my life when a woman in her 80s has murdered and decapitated another woman. Women in their 80s tend to be quite small and frail and, and certainly not murderously inclined. You get halfway through the New York Times piece and it says, this woman previously identified as a man. You get to the very last line of the BBC article, which many people won't get that far, and it says this is a trans person. So it was a man. It was a man in his 80s who, by the way, had murdered women previously in the 1960s, earlier in his life. So those news reports were lying to us. They had sacrificed objectivity and truth at the altar of ideology. And I think when the media does that, when the media elevates the need to express an ideological uh, uh, belief over the uh, duty to tell us the truth of what's happening in the world, then you know we've crossed the Rubicon and we've moved into a new era of thought control, essentially, and trying to make us think in a particular way. Uh, We're told repeatedly that this is all, uh, all these changes are so that, uh, you know, we can be respectful of others. Well, there's a way to be respectful and and still discuss things properly and openly. And uh, her penis, those are two words that don't go together. And, you know, unless your wife is claiming ownership of your penis, I don't think those two things go together in any way, shape, or form. Uh, you mentioned heresy trials earlier, and it was, it was the late 70s, you said. In 1979, uh, Monty Python came out with the movie Life of Brian, and it was described as blasphemous, heretical. It was condemned. 
um, Church of England, the Vatican, everywhere. Uh, but they were foreseeing some of this. Yeah. Uh, there's a scene that gets passed around an awful lot now where Eric Idle announces that he wants to be a woman um, and, and, and that he wants to have a baby. And while they discuss that he can't have a baby, um, it's, it's important for the workers' movement to fight for his right to have a baby, even if he can't. And then they all agree and they think this is good and they congratulate themselves. Were they, did they have a crystal ball? Were they, because it, it, that is exactly what's happening now. Yeah. I mean, it's such a brilliant scene in life of Brian. Yeah. Eric Idol plays a, a, a man called Stan. Uh, even the name Stan in, in ancient uh, biblical times is funny. Uh, he's a member of the people's front of Judea, of course, and he wants to become Loretta. And it's a, it's a brilliant scene. It, 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 it does, foretell what was to come a, a few years later, a few decades later. I wrote a piece for The Spectator, in fact, a few years ago here in the UK, saying that if Life of Brian came out today, it wouldn't be Christian fundamentalists protesting outside cinemas, it would be trans activists. And I have no doubt whatsoever in my mind that that is what would happen. Absolutely no doubt. In fact, there was some discussion here about, I think, Life of Brian becoming a musical or moving to the stage in some way. And even then, there were uh, some squawks of disagreement and disapproval online because of that particular scene uh, where they essentially make fun of the idea that a man can become a woman or a man can give birth and so on. Um, yeah, so it's a, it's a very good... It's, it, they predicted it perfectly well. And it's also a good reminder of how censorship can change over time and how the nature of authoritarianism can change. So... Uh, you know, I think about my own time in journalism. One of the first things I ever wrote about years and years and years ago in the 1990s was this video game called Carmageddon. And as the name would suggest, it was a pretty dark, grim game. You would drive around and I think the aim was to try and knock down as many people as possible. It was quite a, a bloody, brutal video game. And I and uh, Christian activists and right-wing people wanted to ban it. And I wrote a couple of pieces um, in defense of it. That was one of the first things I ever did, I think. Um, so even I can remember a time when censorship and authoritarianism tended to come from the right, tended to come from Christian-inclined people. It, that's changed enormously beyond recognition. And now whenever I hear people demanding cancellation or demanding that someone be blacklisted from university campus or demand that we all change the way we speak in order to be supposedly respectful, as you say, I just know it's going to be someone who claims to be left wing, someone who claims to be small L liberal. So that shift, I think, is, is has been dramatic and, and very eye opening. Years ago, I remember talking to Ben Shapiro about his... Um his time going around Hollywood and, and speaking to producers and directors and, and writers about how they worked in um, uh, purposefully, they worked in progressive messaging into their stories. And, and the biggest people in this were the, the people behind Friends. And you look at a show like Friends now, is as innocuous as we thought it was. I can't believe it's still on streaming services. When you watch it, you say those jokes could not be made today. This storyline could not be told today. Uh, we have um, that. That is the extent of self censorship. It's not just the life, of Brian, not going to the the musical uh, show. We would cancel Chandler and Monica. <laughs> 
Yeah, and and one of the recent discussions about Friends is that it was too white. And I think, in fact, one of the creators of Friends actually caved into that criticism and said, yeah, we, it was too white. We should have uh, thought about the characters. So it's not even the things they say which would get Friends cancelled these days. So that is no doubt the case. It's also even just who they are, the fact that it was six white friends. Most of their other friends were white as well. Even that would be intolerable in 2023. Um, yeah, it's it's remarkable how quickly you know i refer to it in the book as the constant churn of political correctness and you never know what's what's going to become unsayable tomorrow you know things can change very very quickly one minute you're being really politically correct and and supposedly polite and you're using all the right terms and all the right pronouns etc but it might change tomorrow you can still get cancelled you can still find yourself thrown under the bus for failing to keep up with the constant changes in language and ideology that are taking place I think the point you made earlier about um, politeness and respectfulness, I think that's a really important thing to shine a light on because I'm fully in favor of people being polite and respectful. I think that's a good way to go through life. Uh, but since, you know, since when did being polite mean saying things that you don't believe to be true? Since when did being polite means referring to someone who has a penis and may even have a beard and his name might be Dave or something? Since when did being polite mean accepting the idea that that person is not only a woman, but might also be a lesbian. You know, politeness doesn't cover being dishonest to yourself and lying in public because you want to stay on the good side of the correct thinking people. That's not politeness. That's cowardice, in fact. And that is caving into the authoritarian agenda. And, uh, you know, where was the politeness when, when a rape claimant in a British court was pressured to refer to the man who raped her as she. Therefore, not only did he violate her bodily integrity, but then she was also forced to buy into his delusional identity. Where was the politeness and respect for her? Where was the respect for her experience? Where was the respect for the experience of that woman who was killed by the 80-something man in New York City? When the New York Times wrote about that man as a she, they were not only lying to us about his his sex, they were also demeaning the experiences of his victims who were attacked by a man, not by a woman. So if we're going to be respectful, let's make it go across the board and also be respectful to people who don't accept some of these new ideologies and have a very legitimate criticism of them. The book is called The Heretic's Manifesto, Essays on the Unsayable. Brendan O'Neill, the author with me, perhaps we've already said some unsayable things. We have to take a quick commercial break. We'll see if we come back after this. Shipping can make or break a sale, so optimize how you ship your orders with ShipStation. They make it easy to automate and manage orders no matter how big your business grows. And they might even be able to help reduce shipping and warehouse costs. So optimize and keep up your momentum for growth with ShipStation. Sign up for your free 60-day trial now at ShipStation.com and use the code P-O-D. That's ShipStation.com with the code P-O-D. Okay, so hopefully we haven't canceled each other and uh, people can still hear Brendan O'Neill and myself talking. His book is uh, Heretics Manifesto, Essays on the Unsayable. And, and, and Brendan, I was pretty sure I knew where you were going when you started talking about uh, witches and conjuring weather. I was sure you were going to talk about climate change, but I didn't. I, I thought, oh, is he stretching here? Is he stretching trying to link women in Scotland in 1590 and East Lothian with, with climate change. 
but you weren't. And, and you surprised me with this story. I'd never heard of it. Um, tell us a bit about that background of conjuring weather before we get into how we have to, uh, you know, discuss climate change in a way so that again, we don't offend the, the perpetually offended. Yeah, so that's, um, yeah, chapter two in the book is called Witch Finding, and it really draws a link between some of the witch trials of the 1500s and the 1600s in particular, and the contemporary attitudes towards climate change, particularly towards climate change scepticism. Anyone who criticizes the idea that the world is ending is instantly denounced as a, as a denier or, or overly skeptic or a, a wrong thinker who should be banished from polite society. And the point I make in that chapter is that a lot of the witches who were hanged or burnt at the stake in Europe, particularly northern Europe, in the 1500s and the 1600s, one of the accusations made against them was essentially climate change, that they had had a detrimental impact on the weather, that they had conjured up contrary weather, which is how it was referred to. And they were punished for having done so because crops failed or there was too much rain, too much heat, too much cold, particularly too much cold. And they were often burnt at the stake for having caused these uh, uh, terrible weather incidents. So I, I write about the North Berwick witch trials um, in Scotland in the 1590s, which they uh, preceded the more famous Salem witch trials in America by more than 100 years um, or around 100 years. And they were... Um, a really shocking incident in, in, in British history. I think around 25 women in total were killed. Many were tortured. Uh, many were arrested and, and branded and punished in some way. And one of the accusations made against them was that they had caused terrible weather, which, pre which prevented Anne of Denmark from coming to Scotland, where she was supposed to marry King James. So and if you look at the history of uh, witch trials, what you recognize is that they were very much linked to the Little Ice Age, because this was the time of the Little Ice Age. There was very cold weather in northern Europe for a few centuries, and uh, witch trials exploded in times of particularly cold weather. Crops were failing, people were going hungry, people were terrified, and they looked for the demonic force that was responsible for all of this, and they found it in the crazy old woman at the end of the street or the, the hysterical woman who spoke her mind or however they uh, viewed these women, and those women Had too many cats? T too many cats, <laughs> cat ladies, I'm sure, as well. And and so the, the point I make, and um, it's funny you pinpoint that chapter because I've had so much feedback on this chapter from people who are either infuriated by it or who who feel enlightened by it as well I think and um, the point I make is that there are similarities to the climate discussion today we don't burn witches at the stake anymore but we do brand people as deniers we do blacklist them if they if they criticize um, the the idea that the world is ending we there is a, a, an unforgiving climate I think pun intended, around the climate change issue. And I think it has echoes of those uh, witch trials of the past. You know, for the longest time, I've said um, my biggest problem with the climate change movement is it doesn't matter what the problem is. This uh, solution is always um, uh, socialism, communism, some sort of uh, left-wing authoritarian government and, and you know thus i often call the green party watermelons but it, you know they just if you don't agree with the outcome even we could sit here and say well you're absolutely right but that's not the solution you're still de uh, denounced as a denier or if you ask for evidence we had a a massive 
forest fire in British Columbia burned most of a town to ground, a place called Lytton, British Columbia. Um, the, uh, the most probable cause of that fire were sparks coming off of a train that locals had complained about these train tracks going through a certain area, causing sparks. And still to this day, it's no Lytton burned to the ground due to climate change. We had a whole episode recently talking to a, a specialist on this who says, yes, there's a base level warming that's happening, may have an impact, but there's no correlation to the forest fires, which go up and down on an annual basis. But we are obsessed in this country that if you don't say all of these forest fires are caused by climate change, even the ones caused by careless campfires and cooking fires by people out in the woods, well, then you are a, a climate denier. Yeah, that's it's a similar vibe here in U- in the UK and across Europe as well. I think um, you know I'm not I'm not a climate change denier. I think climate change is happening. I think there's an important dis- discussion to be had about why it's happening and what we might do about it. But I am an apocalypse denier. I'm a proud apocalypse denier. So when Extinction Rebellion, for example, says that billions will die unless we achieve net zero by 2050. There is nothing in the scientific literature, not a single word that backs up an idea like that. Nothing in the IPCC report says anything like that. Uh, there is an, no uh, scientific... Did, didn't the, the, the recently appointed head of the IPCC recently come out and, and make statements that, against the, the constant uh, threat of apocalypse, saying that yes. this isn't helping, as he said? Yeah, I think there are a lot of people at the IPCC who are worried about the politicization of their reports and the way they get bent to this apocalyptic mindset that some people have. So I'm an apocalypse denier. I don't think billions of people are about to die because of fossil fuel use. And I think that's simply completely untrue. And when you see front page front pages of the newspapers, which we've had in the UK over the past few weeks, saying the planet is on fire, That's not true. That is simply false. You know, there are wildfires at the moment, particularly tragic ones in Hawaii. And I think we need to investigate why they happened and why there was a failure of warning to the citizens of of that region who who were not warned in time in order that they might escape. Uh, There are wildfires in Greece. There have been wildfires in Portugal. So, yes, there are wildfires, as there are every year uh, around the world. But the planet is not on fire. So when the Evening Standard here in the UK had a front page of a photoshopped image of the Earth uh, in a a ball of flames, that is not science. That is not objective journalism. That is hysteria. That is a form of uh, delirium. And I think we need to call that out. And, you know, my attitude, you know, it's interesting that you use the term watermelons because I've always always actually been slightly uncomfortable with with the term watermelons. I, I know what it means, green on the outside, uh, red on the inside. So they, they use the uh, environmental issue as a cover for a kind of left-wing communistic agenda. I think something more interesting has happened. I think the left over the past few decades has actually abandoned its old commitment to industrial progress, to economic growth, to liberating the world's poor from poverty and need. All of these were great causes of the left for decades. If you look at someone like Sylvia Pankhurst, one of the suffragettes here in the UK, who was also a radical, radical leftist, um, she wrote very often about needing to create more and more stuff. We, she said we need more production, more consumption, so that if anything, we have too much stuff and certainly enough for people to live on. 
That was the attitude of the left for decades. But something turned over the past 30 or 40 years, and the left is now one of the great cheerleaders for degrowth instead of economic growth, for so-called sustainable development in the third world, which really means no development at all, and for winding everything down, shrinking the human footprint. My view is that that is a grotesquely irresponsible argument to make in an era in which 3 billion people still live in dire poverty, when most many people around the world use the same amount of electricity as an American refrigerator, when there is an extraordinary energy divide between people like us who are lucky enough to be surrounded by abundant, relatively cheap energy, and people in parts of Africa and Asia who have virtually no energy at all. The left has abandoned its commitment to economic equality across the globe in favour of going along with this apocalyptic idea that if we don't stop developing, then the world will end. So I think they've jettisoned their traditional commitments for a hysterical campaign. So in terms of... um the the impact of climate change and and the movement on the um, on on the language. I like your term apocalypse denier um, because you know I don't think it helps anybody's cause to say well there will be no more snow after two thousand seven. Here we are in twenty twenty three, and I can assure you many of us went skiing over this past winter. Um, but in terms of the effect on the language, where do you see it hitting the most? I think there's an increasing hysteria behind the language so um i touch on this in the book a little bit but it's got even worse since the book came out so we used to talk about climate change then it was climate emergency then it was climate breakdown then the new yorker used the term climate apocalypse and when i read that in the new yorker i thought to myself this is really an interesting shift in language because there's nothing you rational you can say about a climate apocalypse. You can't say, okay, well, I think the way we can solve this is by having more economic growth over there and maybe doing this over here, because it's an apocalypse. It's the end of the world. It's the end of life as we know it, and there's no rational response to that. So, one of the points, I'm- you know, I. I, I- I see what you're saying. A lot of people will still complain. Well, it used to be global warming, then it became climate change. But you can understand why that difference may have been made and and why people wanted to change it. But you're right. How? What do you do in the face of a climate apocalypse? Uh, Go into the bunker, make sure you have enough supplies and don't come out till it's over. Exactly right. And that's the impact I think it has on lots of people. I think the more they up the ante and, and make the language even more hysterical, I think they have a a counterproductive impact. And and we know that there is a rise of climate anxiety amongst young people. I've seen reports about climate anxiety amongst teenagers. It's been reported in newspapers here and elsewhere, I'm sure. And I think to myself, well, that's not surprising. They've got Greta Thunberg, the prophetess of doom, who's become supposedly the spokesperson for young people. I should say for for well-off Western young people, there are many, many young people in other parts of the world who would like some economic growth. Thanks, Greta, if you don't mind. Um, but she's become the spokesperson and her message is very, very unhinged, if I may say so. The idea that the world is coming to an end, that she and her generation have no future, that the planet is on fire. She has said things like that as well. And it has the impact, I think, of making people either think this is a load of nonsense, and I think it is a load of nonsense, so they kind of back off and leave it alone and think about other issues instead, 
or it makes them think, well, if everything's coming to an end and I have no future and there's no point having any children, I'll just give up. I won't campaign. I won't try and change the world. I'll just revert to a metaphorical bunker at least and and get on with my small life. So um, the, the hysterical language doesn't help anyone, including those who would like to have a cleaner environment. Uh, listening to the um, uh, the apocalypse, apocalyptic musings of uh, those with the Gnostic climate gospel, they can only they can know it. Uh, Brendan, you you remember the childhood uh, chant: "Sticks and stones may be- break my bones, but words will never hurt me." Uh, I'm not sure why our parents taught us that, because words can definitely hurt, um, and, and we all know that. But you do close your book. Uh, talking about words wound. Um, are you arguing that words don't wound, that they can, but there's nothing we can do about it? Or what? what, what is your point on writing about words wound? Because we all know, that, you know, journalists love to use phrases like the pen is mightier than the sword. Um, not sure I agree with that all the time, but, you know, words can spark revolutions. Words can spark movements. Words can make you fall in love, devastate your soul. What do you say that we do about language that will offend, language that will hurt? Uh, Yeah, the reason I wrote that closing chapter is because I think there is a tendency amongst some of us who support freedom of speech to say to people, look, they're just words, relax, calm down. They won't kill you. They won't hurt you. It's just everyday speech. Because on the um, regressive left, as I prefer to call them, rather than the progressive left, on the regressive left, there is this view now that words are so hurtful and so damaging to one's self-esteem and, and so potentially violent. They treat words as violence that they have to be closed down. And I think there's a there's a defensive response amongst free speech defenders to say, listen, relax, it's just words. So the point I make in that chapter is that we shouldn't say that. We shouldn't do that because it's not true. Words can wound. Words can hurt people. In fact, words can overturn society words can overhaul society every revolution begins with words and ideas and uh you know words make people upset they can change society in a way that feels very disorientating they push forward new ideas that older generations might find quite offensive and and disorientating as well so we should be honest about that and i think that's one of the reasons we should defend freedom of speech precisely because it has the power to change society in a way that is not violent But we should absolutely challenge the idea that words are violence. This is a a new idea that's been making the rounds for quite some time. And and the thing that worries me most about the conflation of words and violence is that it justifies violence in response to words. Because if you say that those words are so wounding and so hurtful and so violent, they have to be silenced, eventually people will think, well, if words are violence, why shouldn't I use violence in response to those words that hurt my feelings? And I think the perfect example of that was the Charlie Hebdo massacre in 2015, where two radical Islamists visited violence upon cartoonists and writers who they felt offended by, whose depictions of Muhammad and and other scurrilous material, allegedly scurrilous material, they found hurtful and violent. So we have to maintain a clear distinction, a clear moral distinction between words and action but at the same time acknowledge that words are powerful and they're the best tool we have for trying to change society for the better. Okay, so you you talk you spoke about the regressive left and and saying, you know, being offended by words. But 
you've got a, a faction of the people supporting free speech and often on the fringe of the right, I don't know what part of the right to call them, who feel it necessary to be needlessly antagonistic in defense of free speech. I will say whatever I want. I will get in your face. I will yellow scream. That doesn't help the cause of free speech either. You know, being a jerk, um, sure, you're free to be an absolute jerk if you want, but being a jerk, um, well, you're just being a jerk. You're not advocating for free speech. What would you say to those those people? I, I really agree with that. And in fact, it's something I find increasingly worrying. Uh, there are sections of the new right, the anti-woke right, that actually makes me feel quite uncomfortable. And I say that as someone who is implacably anti-woke myself. Um, and But, you know, one of the problems people like me face is that if you criticize wokeness, if you criticize these new ideologies, people instantly assume you're an old white man, you're an old conservative bloke who wants to turn the clock back to the 1950s when women were in the kitchen and gay people were in the closet and black people were not being served at certain restaurants. For me, the reason I'm against wokeness is the opposite reason to all of that. It's precisely the gains of the 1960s and the 1970s, those wonderful progressive leaps forward for women's equality, for gay rights, for civil rights, for equality between the races, not only in the United States and the United Kingdom, but also across the world in anti-colonial struggles, many of which I find incredibly inspiring. It's precisely those progressive gains that I think are now being undone by the new woke ideologies, are now being undone by a trans agenda, which I'm sorry, sometimes crosses the line into misogyny and sometimes eats away at women's hard-won rights. Or the idea that young gay people, for example, might need to have hormonal treatment or surgical treatment in order to correct their sex. Uh, We see lots of young lesbians in Britain undergoing hormonal treatment because they don't want to be lesbians. And I find that a a potential backward step for the hard-won rights of gay people. Um, In the race issue as well, I'm very worried about the way in which wokeness is rehabilitating the racial imagination. And we're now uh, pressured to judge everyone by race rather than by character, to think that white people are privileged and therefore problematic, Black people are victims and therefore deserving of pity, apparently, rather than equality. So it's the undoing of those leaps forward that I find most concerning about all of this. And I I think sections of the right that is anti-woke doesn't really understand that. The the comedian Ryan Long, a Canadian fellow from Toronto, down in New York now, uh, does a lot of sketch comedy videos. He did one a little while ago on exactly what you're talking about, on um, the shift in how we look at race. And and he just using comedy magically detailed how uh, the the new anti racism agenda fits perfectly well with the old racist agenda. Yeah. The races should be separate. Oh, I agree. Uh, we we shouldn't date each other. Oh, I agree. And like it, yeah. these two, you know, one guy playing the the old racist, the other one playing the new anti racist. They agreed on everything. Um, it, it, it's a bizarre world that we live in. And we need to be able to talk about it. And that's why I think your book is important, Brendan. Well, thank you very much, Brian. I think um, I really agree with what you just said. I think some of the new race discussion is horrific, actually. And I am a firm believer in racial equality. I had a big argument with Robin D'Angelo, who's the author of White Fragility on BBC TV a few years ago, where she was going on and on about whiteness. And I said, look, 
let's forget about skin color and talk about what we have in common. And it was like I was an alien from another planet. So, yeah, I think we do have to introduce reason and I would say ideals of equality and tolerance and freedom back into all these discussions if we want to make society a better place. All right. His new book is A Heretic's Manifesto, uh, Essays on the Unsayable. And uh, thanks for saying them with me today, Brendan. Thank you. All right. My name's Brian Lilly. This has been the Full Comment Podcast. Full Comment is a post-media podcast. This episode was produced by Andre Pru with theme music by Bryce Hall. Kevin Libin is the executive producer. You can subscribe to Full Comment on Apple Podcasts, Google, Spotify, Amazon Music, etc. Listen through an app, your Alexa-enabled devices. Uh, please consider leaving us a rating. Give us an, a review. Tell your friends about us. Share it on social media. Thanks for listening. Until next time, I'm Brian Lilly.